would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, this morning. We began last Sunday a series of sermons titled Devoted, focused on issues related to marriage and family. You might note this morning that we're taking sort of an unorthodox approach to marriage and family issues and a marriage and family series of sermons, and that we are withholding conversation on roles and responsibilities uh, exclusive to those roles to, to, to toward the end of our series of messages, focusing first on a handful of sins that, that really plague the family. When you hear of some kind of cataclysmic fall within a marriage or a family, usually that's not something that happens as a result of a single decision that was made. Usually it's a thousand decisions made in the buildup to that moment of cataclysmic failure. Families don't ordinarily fall overnight. It happens as a result of the gradual erosion of the foundation of that family. The constant pressure of sin over time undermines the family's foundations. And then the cataclysmic event comes. Without the steady foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is the kind of cataclysmic fall that we often become aware of by the time of which it's far too late to do anything to repair either the foundations or the family. What I want to talk about this morning is a sin that is as much as any sin characteristic of the culture in which we live. Our society has become known for certain sins, we could list them off. But I can think of no sin as characteristic of the culture in which we live and the sin of anxiety, or perhaps better said in our context, the sin of busyness. It is often the case that it's not the outright evil things, the bad things, the overtly wicked things that beset us in our journey with Jesus. It is just the constant struggle of the day-to-day the varied responsibilities and obligations we endure in this life that distract us from giving time and attention to the kingdom, to the more pressing issues in our life. And so the constant pressure, pressure of busyness, the constant pressures of anxiety erode away at the foundations of our marriages, the foundations of our families. Now listen, I get it. I have a recent high school graduate son. I have a 15-year-old son who plays every sport known to man. And I have a four-year-old who may be the poster child for attention deficit disorder. <laughs> I learned just as I got to church this morning that the 18 and the 15-year-old decided to fight over a shirt. So I plan to kill them when I get home this <laughs> afternoon. So listen, I get it. You are pulled and tugged at in a thousand different directions. So how can we center ourselves? How can we ensure that under the constant barrage of pressures created by reasonable obligations and responsibilities, that we hold fast to the faith, that the foundations of our marriages, the foundations of our families are not undermined over time by such pressure? Thankfully, Jesus tells us Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. 
Luke 12, 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth more, more, much more than the birds? Can any of you add a cubit to his height by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Seek his kingdom. These things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are really three primary commands that hold together the passage. Don't worry, stop striving, and don't fear. Those are really easy to say and very hard to do. So just by basic observation, I, I want to remind you that the one who gave the command is the one who, by the word of his mouth, spoke the world into existence. Flung the stars, the moon, the planets in their courses, fashioned you and I, even as we are, like unto the image of God. When we read the Bible, we're not just reading any book. You could find all sorts of self-help literature in the Western world that might assist you with dealing with anxiety or busyness, organizing your life, personal planning, time management, all of those kinds of resources are available to you. But the word of our God is different. It is alive, powerful, and sharper than a two-edged sword. Implicit in the words of Jesus is the power to see through the very command he issues. This commandment met by a receiving heart full of God's Holy Spirit and a believing body has the power, the potential, the ability under the power of the Holy Spirit to see through what he requires of us in the very passage we have just read. God's word is powerful and abides forever. What we ought to find in the passage is not just insight for living, but the enabling power of the word of God, equipping, empowering, that we might follow through with what we've been called to in the very verses we'll read. Look back to verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. I, I think that this conversation about worry is one of the areas where the imprecise nature of our terminology and, and the difficulties of translating the Bible from an ancient language into a new hurts us in some ways. 
There are times when the terminology behind worry, as Jesus uses here, is used in the positive. In other words, there are certain things about which you should be concerned. As a husband and a father, I am concerned with providing for the needs of my wife, concerned with providing for the needs of my family. As a pastor, I am concerned with providing for the needs of the body, concerned in some ways with meeting the expectations of the church, more importantly, concerned with meeting the expectations of my God. Ultimately, he's my boss. Those are good, valid, legitimate concerns. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't worry about your life. We've all met someone, the likelihood is you know someone, there's someone in every family who has managed for the duration of their life to put their brain in neutral. And they're just ambling through life without care or concern, without purpose or ambition, with seemingly no direction whatsoever. And they might even spiritualize their carelessness by citing verses like this. But that is not what Jesus has in view. In fact, the same word here for worry occurs again in a slightly different form for anxious or anxiety later in our passage. And that usage provides a little greater depth of insight as to what Jesus intends. The language of anxious or anxiety in our passage, it carries the idea of waffling between fear and hope. There may be these slivers of moments of optimism that things are going to work out all right, but predominantly there is an ongoing overriding fear that somehow, some way, we will not meet our self-imposed expectations, we will not live up to what others expect of us, or we will not achieve the kind of things we see others about us achieving. Somehow, some way, that milestone we've established for ourselves, the goal line that we've set, we cannot, will not reach, and our satisfaction cannot be full if we do not arrive there. Verse 23, Jesus cites a series of examples to remind us of the faithful provision of our God. He says here, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can, can any of you add a cubit to his height by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? He says, don't worry. And then he, he tells us why. Because God meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is reason number one. This is the prevailing reason we need not worry. Because God is faithful to provide for the needs of his people. If you've been walking with Jesus for any time whatsoever, you have experienced the faithful provision of God. God has met our most pressing need. I want you to think for just a moment about how incongruous worry is with the Christian life. We, as followers of Jesus, have accepted the free grace of God, the gift that is his son, Jesus Christ. God's only son was given unto us as a testament to the love of the father for us. Jesus becomes our substitute on the cross. He pays the price of his own life and blood that we might receive the forgiveness of our sin. 
cross is a testament to. God has written in history. Historical record is on the side of God's faithful provision, meeting our most pressing need, the forgiveness of sin and the prevailing issue of death, alleviated in the death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ. And Paul asks the question in Romans 8. He asks it rhetorically because the answer is obvious. The answer, answer is straightforward. How would he, who would not withhold his own son, withhold from us any good thing whatsoever? God has given us his son, Jesus. If you have embraced and accepted that reality, doesn't it stand to reason that he'll meet the need that is the source of your ongoing anxiety? Jesus presses at that in the passage. But he asks something that I think is an important question in verse 26. If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? The question is preceded by another. Who by worrying can add a single cubit to his height. In other words, you're worrying about things that you can't do anything about. If you played sports, somewhere along the way, you probably had a coach who said, control the controllables. Take care of what you can take care of. Control what you can control. I still hear those words. I think that's a really good life principle. It's really the only way you can approach the day. Being a, being a pastor, you're never finished. There's never a day when I go home and I go, well, this work is done. And as a matter of fact, I've never been the guy to move from ministry to ministry to ministry. This is my third pastor. My first pastor was very short. So I was 12 years in the last ministry I served. I was a little bit shocked at how liberated I felt in the few days between the last ministry assignment, and the new ministry assignment. There was like four days when I didn't have anything to do. It's kind of a weird, weird feeling, right? There's never a day when I go home and I go, all that's done. Everybody loves Jesus. Everybody's making disciples. All of Hernando has come to faith. This has become the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so you control what you can control. You do all that you can do within a span of a single day. You go home at night and you rest well knowing you've done all you can do. And you'd be at peace with that. But that's not exactly the point that Jesus is making in our passage. If you can't, if you can't do anything about the little stuff, how are you supposed to do anything about the big stuff? Control what you can control is a good life principle. But what Jesus is saying here is that you nor I are controlling as much as we think we are. We ought to rest not only in the provision of God, but in the absolute sovereign provision of God. You know what that word means? That means that he is lording over every decision, every moment, every facet of our life, the very hairs of our head, the breath in our lungs, the beating of our heart. The life path of our kids and our grandkids, the decisions that our spouse may make. Every part of our life is under the sovereign lordship of Jesus. Dear friend, this is cause to rest. He goes on in verse 27, consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. 
if that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? How, how many of you could testify that in seasons of your life when it seemed there were no way forward, think in purely financial terms, how many times in your life when the math just didn't work has God showed up and provided? It, it, it's, it's every time. God is always constantly and consistently providing. The second command in our passage is not unrelated to the first. In verse 29, Jesus says, don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink and don't be anxious. So the command here is to stop with your striving laboring and straining toward the next milestone or attaining the next goal that you may have established for yourself. When Brandy and I first got married, I tell this often, and I'm still not sure that most people understand the extent to which I mean this, we had less than nothing. We talk about poverty in terms in this country that are mystifying to me and sometimes, frankly, frustrating. Poverty in our country means that you may not have um, unlimited package on your $1,000 iPhone, and you may not have the premium channels on your satellite selections, and you may not have the latest model of a tens of thousands of dollars vehicle, but you're doing pretty good, right? We, we, we got married. We lived on Raymond noodles and Kool-Aid. The first house I ever lived in in my life that either wasn't falling down, and I mean actively falling down, or had wheels under it, was when I took the first pastorate and we moved into that little brick house on Maven Sturgis Road across the street from Wake Forest Baptist Church. When we started, we started with less than nothing. And there, there was always these, these milestones. We get you through school, and we get me through this degree program, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then we do this. And there, there, came, there came a day where we, you know, we just, sort, just sort of gotten through some things, and then we said, and then we, we, got, we get through this. And we both sort of looked at one another at the same time, and, and, and you didn't even have to say anything. There was this shared realization that it's always going to be something else. So let's settle into the idea of finding our satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ. We'll let these things come as they come, and we'll bear with the responsibilities and obligations of life in a responsible way, but we're going to stop striving. We're going to stop wringing our hands over the attainment of the next goal imposed upon us by the culture around us. Y'all tracking with me this morning? The very fact that, that our cultural experience is so far away from what Jesus describes is a testament to the truth of this reality, that you're just going to move the goalpost. In this room, you've got goals, and you're thinking in your mind, if I could just get to this, then it's going to be better. You high school students, if I could just graduate, oh, it's going to be better. You college students, if I can just get that job, oh, it's going to be better. You singles, if I can just find a spouse, oh, it's going to be better. We just get this next promotion, things are going to be better. I'm going to stop with the anxiety. 
If we, can just, if we can just get the down payment on that house we've always dreamed of having, things are going to be better. Occasionally, I'll have a conversation with someone who's approaching retirement. And they'll say, if I can just get there, things are going to be better. It's always funny talking to those who are on the cusp of retirement. And then you find them a year after retirement. They're no longer retired. They're just tired. Because yet again, the goalposts have been moved. And you can find yourself striving for all of your days, chasing after the next achievement the culture convinces you you must attain to. Chasing after the next self-imposed goal. Or you can choose right now, today, in the moment, to find your ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in the provision of God, of his son Jesus Christ, and the salvation he has afforded us through the shedding of his blood and through the power of resurrection. Stop striving, Jesus says, for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. Notice here that Jesus is dealing with food, drink, or water and clothing. I doubt anyone who would gather today at McInvale and Bahalia was worried about food, drink, or clothing. Now it's approaching noon, so some of you are worried about food, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. And some of you are concerned with wardrobe, but that is not what Jesus is talking about in our passage. Do, do you realize that you can go to your kitchen and walk over to the sink and turn the faucet and drinkable water will come out of the faucet. Do you realize what an advancement in technology that represents for us? And even that's not good enough. We go pay $2 for water in a bottle that comes out of a faucet somewhere else. I'm told that if you have change on your dresser, that that puts you wealthier than over 90% of the world population. Sort of chew on that for just a moment. Now, I don't say that to guilt us in our Western first world experience. I say that in order to demonstrate that no matter what you get next, like some, somewhere in the world, there's a little family huddled in a, tin, in, a, in a tin hut, and they're thinking, if we just had running water, man, we would have life by the tail. If, if I just had those shoes I saw on television when I watched, walked by that store, the, the, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're always going to be moving the goalposts. So give it up. Just, just give it up. I'm not talking about bailing on real responsibilities and obligations that you bear within the workforce or within your family, whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ceasing from imposing upon yourselves the expectations of the culture around you to drive certain things, to have certain things, to live certain places, to do certain stuff. I don't know where this shift in the culture, like when we were kids, we never, we went on one vacation when I was a child, one vacation. We went and watched the Atlanta Braves play and we only did that because we stayed in someone's house that my mother knew. And now it's like, if you, it's child abuse if you don't take your children to the beach over the summer. What in the world is up with that? And as a further testament to the extent to which we are spoiled, whereas in other parts of the world where people have real jobs, they would much rather spend leisurely hours in the shade, in the cool of the day, not to mention the possibility of our climate-controlled homes. We, for leisure in America, 
leave behind our climate-controlled homes to sit out in the sun on the beach. We have it really, really good. No cause for worry, no cause for anxiety. And yet we continue to shift the goal line, creating for us this impulse to strive and strive and strive and strive. And consistently, Jesus just says, stop and rest in me. He goes on to say in verse 30, the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these and your father knows that you need them. The world around us should be worrying. The world around us should be striving because this is it for the world. But our citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. It is counterintuitive that we would worry and strive as citizens of a kingdom that has come and is coming. Verses 31 and 32 sort of package together the third and final command in our text. But seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. There's a, a sister verse to verse 31 in Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus says, more fully expressed, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Here in Luke 12, 31, he simply says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you in some ways implying, therefore, do not be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't be fearful about God's provision. Rather, seek first the kingdom and the things you might otherwise be concerned about will be provided for you by the sovereign provision of our God. Seek first his kingdom. Now, this is a great life principle. Maybe some of you have observed that when you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else has a way of taking care of itself. We did a little exercise in our staff meeting on Monday. We just identified different component parts of our life, different categories of responsibility. We talked about our spiritual life, some of the responsibilities that come in that category, prayer, um, discipleship, Bible reading, scripture memorization, fasting, disciple-making, church attendance, various things that we do in service to others within the context of, of the local body. There's a sort of spiritual compartment. Then your personal life, diet and exercise, self-care, doctor's appointments, all of those things we do on a daily basis just to take care of ourselves, the basic stuff of life, shower, brush your teeth, you know what I mean. And then, and then there's the family part of our life, and, and there's ball games, and there's discipling of our children and there's quality time and there's date nights with your wife or your spouse there's all kinds of responsibilities that come in that family category homework who knew homework would be such a big part of being a mom or a dad there's all these things that that happen there and then 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 you got work life and all of us have varied responsibilities in terms of of work for me as a pastor Sunday's always coming and, and in your experience, whatever that looks like for you, there's a Sunday that is always coming. The purpose of the exercise was to demonstrate how quickly we could fill a whiteboard with the various responsibilities that we bear in life. Now, when you get busy, when you get into those seasons of life that I call survival mode time, 
when with laser-like focus, you're just trying to live the next few days and see through the pressing demands that have been placed upon you. Which of those categories do you think is most likely to be left off? It's the spiritual part of our life because they're not as measurable. They're not as tangible. The accountability is not as obvious. No one's looking over your shoulder to make sure you're reading the Bible. Only you truly know what your prayer time with God is like. Most of the time, others don't know about your activity or inactivity with regards to evangelism and disciple-making. Church attendance is uh, one of the few things that is apparent, that is measurable, that's tangibly expressed in some way. And so it's that spiritual compartment of our life that gets left off. And here's what you'll experience. Anytime you fail to seek first the kingdom of God, you'll find that your efficiency and your effectiveness in every other category of life is diminished. That's the opposite way of saying what Jesus is saying positively in our passage. When you seek first the kingdom of God, your efficiency and your effectiveness in every component part of your life is enhanced by having sought first the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's a relatively famous story in Christian history of Martin Luther, the reformer of the church. When Luther reformed the church in 1517, this was a cataclysmic shift for followers of Jesus. The church had been bound to Catholic practice for over a thousand years. Luther was tasked not only with establishing a, a faithful expression of the New Testament's doctrine, faith, and practice, but all of the, the lesser matters that come along with that, new songs for the church to sing, new catechism for the indoctrination of the children, devotionals for the family, sermons for the church, instruction and insight for faithful pastors serving all over Germany and Western Europe. By the time of Luther's death, it is said that he had written more than 60,000 pages of published literature. When he was brought before the council of the church to be tried as a heretic, they laid his work, some 20,000 pages at the time, out before the court. They laughed. They didn't believe it possible that someone, that a single person, could produce such volumes of writing in such a brief period of time. Luther was known for having spent three hours each morning in intense prayer. And eventually someone asked, how, in light of all of the responsibilities that he bore, could he manage to find the time to commit three hours of every morning to that kind of intense prayer? His response was, in effect, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have time not to pray. And what I'm saying to you this morning, dear friends, is that you don't have time not to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because when you do, all the other things, every source of anxiety for you is provided for by the faithful provision of Jesus. Your, your anxiety, your busyness may come from any number of directions. For some of you, it's, it's, it is financial, which is usually the pressure to keep up. You want something or you feel as though you need something, or maybe even worse, you have something that in reality you couldn't bankroll living up to the expectations of those around you, and now you're in an absolute mess. 
For some of you, it's family. Family can be a great source of anxiety. I don't know of anything in this world that moves my heart more than my wife and my children. And they don't always do what I want them to do, right? If they would, everything would be better, but they don't do it. For some of you, it's health issues, which has always seemed to me to be the real stinker. Because it's not always that you made a conscious decision that resulted in this health issue, but now you've got it, and it's created all of these other problems in your life. Most of the time, when stress and anxiety comes, when busyness comes, it's because we don't know how to say no or we're pressing to live up to certain expectations. But sometimes things just happen that are completely beyond our control. It feels unfair in the moment. I don't, I don't know what your source of anxiety is. Maybe one day we'll have occasion to come back and to address them one by one and to speak to them from the perspective of the Bible. But I can say as a blanket statement, regardless of what your source of anxiety is this morning, that if you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. What you're going to have to settle in your heart this morning is the question of whether or not you're going to trust the promised provision of God. For some of you, it's a question of whether you'll trust the promised provision of God for the very first time in your life. You know, we talk in such superficial terms about believing. We all believe. Most people believe. It's almost a shocking thing. It, it, it sounds scandalous in the South when we hear of someone who's a professed atheist or agnostic it's like we've never seen one before where are they want to look at them the reality is that there are many 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 within the larger group of believing persons who in spite of their belief have never come into a saving relationship with jesus did you know that the bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble when Jesus invites us to believe, the word has the connotation of trust. We believe the message of the gospel, and the result of that belief is a trust and confidence in the provision of Jesus for our life. Most notably, the provision of his blood, which washes us as white as snow from all our sin. The provision of his resurrection, which is the assurance of our living eternally in heaven with God. But even the lesser provisions are noted. That he gives us daily bread. He meets our every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He soothes our fears and he binds our wounds. I commend him to you this morning as a reliable and trustworthy Savior who has the situation well in hand. God has not vacated the throne of heaven. Jesus is still the King of all kings and the Lord of, our, of, of all lords. And if he's got the universe under control, I'm confident he can manage whatever the source of your anxiety is this morning. Only trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your tenderness toward us, God, that you invite us, weary and heavy laden, unto yourself. Help us to take the gentle and easy burden of your yoke upon us. God, I, I, I pray that as we enter into a time of remembrance, that you would 
Help us, Lord, to see a vivid picture of who your son is, his splendor and glory and invaluable worth. God, help us to see the depth of our own sin, the measure of grace afforded us in Jesus. God, the, the very posture of our heart, the rate of our heartbeat is a testament against us often as to the weakness of our confidence and trust in you. So help us to rest in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to rest in your son, Jesus. We ask it in the power of his name. Amen.